welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. Well, Happy New Year to everyone. I hope you had a good holiday season. We are starting this new year, 2022, with episode number 54. So thanks for joining me. I'm excited to see what this new year has in store for us, in store for the show. Uh, This month, you should start seeing some information about the name change uh, from Isham to HSPA, Healthcare Sterile Processing Association. I'm excited about it. Uh, So you should be on the lookout for any kind of emails and information uh, during this next month as we make that transition. All right, today on the show, we have the segment, What's on My Mind? And then followed by the segment, Mailbox Mania. But before we dive into those segments, I wanted to take a minute to talk about the recent wildfires that broke out just outside of Boulder, Colorado. Now, uh, partly because I just moved from that Denver metro area, and that Denver metro always kind of included the Boulder area. So my heart goes out to uh, the families, uh, anyone who has lost their home, possibly lost a loved one. So if you haven't heard about this fire, it's really different from your usual Colorado or California wildfires you may hear about. Uh, Most of the time, from my experience, uh, most normal fires, if there is such a thing as a normal wildfire, well, they're usually found or they're usually started, you know, kind of in the forest areas, you know, in a rural, uh, either national park or some sort of foresty area. And they burn you know, thousands and thousands of forest land and acreage. And sometimes, you know, those fires affect, you know, maybe smaller mountain towns. Well, this fire started uh, essentially in a suburb of Boulder. And because there was this freakish 100 mile an hour winds, we're talking, you know, hurricane force winds coming down, you know, it spread rapidly, burning thousands of homes. So this wildfire was just out of control. Some said that the fire spread, you know, a hundred yards a second. You know, that's that's a hundred yards a second is a football field every second. So that is scary fast. So this fire came about as close as you can get to burning a hospital to the ground. Now, if you haven't heard this story, you can Google it. Uh, Go ahead and Google. It's a Vista Adventist Medical Center. So the folks at Vista, in the midst of this rapidly moving fire, had to evacuate the entire hospital. So uh, from there, I mean, that's crazy enough as it is, right? So hats off to them for being able to evacuate everyone safely. It's a feat of its own. But as the fire grew closer, the employees of the hospital, some of them stayed behind with water hoses to try to keep the fire away from the hospital oxygen plant. 
Now, I can only imagine what would have happened if the fire reached the oxygen plant, not only uh, accelerating the fire as it is, but it would have certainly destroyed the hospital. Now, it was reported that the fire came within four feet of the hospital. Uh, so this is crazy, right? So uh, again, strong work to the folks at, at Vista Hospital. You know, another reason I was really drawn to this story, and I'll let you read it if you go to Google, again, Google Vista Adventist Hospital. I was drawn to the story because with the aftermath they're now dealing with, the news reported that the hospital is dealing with the cleanup efforts, right? From the ash and the soot from all that fire, right? So it leaves us tons of ash and everywhere. It's reported that all of the HEPA filters in the hospital were clogged uh, with ash. In many cases, the ash can be found in you know, hospital rooms, operating rooms, uh, even covering sterile supplies. So it sounds like they have a long road ahead of them. Uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers go out to all the staff at Avista. I hope you guys can recover quickly. All right, so next on the show, we have the segment, What's on My Mind? What is on my mind today? So if you're not familiar with this segment, uh, if this is one of your first times listening to the show, this is my time to rant. Uh, most of the time, it's it's really not even a rant. It's more of just me talking about something I find interesting. So, uh, so here we go. Well, over the holidays, I got to watch uh, many holiday classic movies, as I'm sure you did, all the favorites that I loved as a kid and growing up. Well, my kiddos, they love the Home Alone movies. Now, if you didn't know, there are now six. There are six different Home Alone movies, and I think one just came out during this holiday season, number six. Well, my kids love them. It's so facto. I get to love them as well. If you've never seen a Home Alone movie, well, I, I can't really help you, uh, but... The first Home Alone movie, it's really about an eight-year-old uh, boy uh, who is accidentally left at home while his family travels to France, right? So uh, he's left at home all by himself. And then the kid, he kind of wrecks some havoc on some would-be thieves trying to rob his home while his family is not there. And he's left all by himself. Uh, it's a pretty good movie if you haven't seen it. But as I watched this movie, uh, maybe for the, the fifth or the sixth time, I, I can't even remember how many times I watched these, but I know I watched all six of the episodes uh, this year. Well, I was reminded of the Swiss cheese model. Now to refresh your memory on the Swiss cheese model, there, there are several layers of defenses when it comes to processes and uh, when things you know, a process ends up harming a person. There are, uh, you know, several layers of defenses usually set up to keep serious incidences from happening or doing harm. And, you know, if something gets past one of the layers, the next layer is supposed to stop the event, right? But there are occasions when the situation moves through all the layers or the defenses 
and actually causes harm. It's like lining the holes in several different layers of Swiss cheese and the vent is able to pass through those holes. So in Home Alone, in this movie, uh, and this is the, the first one, uh, the first incident happens when Kevin, the child who's left home alone, he gets in trouble, right? So he is asked to uh, go to bed early. And since there's all these guests in his house, so he's going with some cousins and aunts and uncles, they're all going to France. And he's not sleeping in his bed. He's forced to sleep uh, somewhere else that he's not used to. And in this case, it is the attic. So he was supposed to sleep in the attic with someone else. Uh, but because of his attitude, uh, he is left sleeping alone in the attic. So here we are uh, sleeping in the attic. And this is a change in the normal process. This isn't the normal process for the household, right? So he normally sleeps in his own bed. But in this case, he's sleeping in the attic. And that kind of sets us up for this next process failure. And the next one is a power line failure, right? So uh, they go to bed, they have their alarm set and the power to the house fails. That alarm that they set to wake up everyone, right? The alarm they set to wake up everyone to go to the airport, well, it fails because of the power failure, right? So it's not until the shuttle service arrives and you know, it always, it arrives at the front and always knocks down that statue. So the shuttle service arrives at the front of the house to take him to the airport. And that is when it wakes everybody up. So the alarm doesn't do its job because of the power failure that happened. And now everybody is in this panic, right? Everybody's running around the house, trying to get their stuff together, trying to go because they're going to be late to the airport. Well, in this panic, they forgot to wake up Kevin because he's asleep in the attic, right? Again, they forget about him in the attic because it's not normally what they do. Something has happened to change that process. Well, there's this assumption uh, that in all this chaos that Kevin got himself up and got himself ready, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous because if anyone's ever had a, uh, raised an eight-year-old son or an eight-year-old uh, daughter for that matter, knows that it's not really happening without repeated reminders, you know, put your socks on, put your shoes on, let's get ready, let's go, right? So there was no backup plan for the alarm and this becomes our second kind of process failure. Well, then the next failure occurs when the oldest teenage daughter, so the oldest of the kids uh, from the this family group, aunts, uncles, kids, brothers, sisters, uh, has the job of doing a head count of all the children prior to leaving. So uh, the children are all piled around these shuttles trying to get in. And here we have the oldest daughter uh, counting uh, heads. And she, she accidentally counts the head of a neighboring boy who just so happens to come by, comes over, checks out what's going on, you know, is curious, has his head turned to her, and she just counts him as Kevin, thinking that uh, he is uh, Kevin supposed to go with him getting on the the van getting in the van well then you know when she's asked if everyone made it into the vehicles you know the teenager as my teenager would smugly uh, recants the number of boys and girls and adults and in the vehicles and so you know, basically saying they're all there quit bugging me I already did the count well Kevin's mother uh, just accepts this count as correct, right? Just, 
just goes ahead and accepts what she says, doesn't do the actual work herself to ensure that everyone is in their right place. And so here we have another broken down process. So the last layer of defense comes at the airport, specifically at the airport gate. So they're late, they're running down the, uh, the airport terminal. The airport gate attendant is supposed to verify the ticket for each passenger. But as we all know, uh, the tickets fall to the ground and instead of picking them up and checking them in individually, she allows the entire group to board without checking them in. So the last failure allows the family to leave Kevin home alone. Now, this is a good example of how processes can fail and create these unintended events that we have. So this silly Christmas classic show really shows us how easily process failures can happen. Now, as you're watching, you know, we can all identify them like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Sometimes it's a little different when it's in our actual practice because failures like this happen all the time in sterile processing. You know, and I think it's important that it's important not only for leaders, but also sterile processing team members to really look and evaluate processes and ensure that we're not leaving Kevin home alone, right? We're not having gaps in our processes. So here's kind of a, a short example of a process failure. Let's say someone is in their seventh hour of working in decontamination. You know, they're tired. They've been working hard all day. They receive a, a, an ENT, uh, let's say like a tympanoplasty tray. And you know, those, those always have those uh, like 20 suctions, right? And they're not just the regular barren seven, five or three French suctions. They go down to those 20 gauge or 22, 24 gauge suctions, right? Well, let's say that the technician, you know, is just tired, had a long day and he misses flushing one of those suctions. And then, you know, let's, we go to the assembly side and the technician there, maybe they're new, maybe they've never even seen a tympanoplasty tray, but staffing is short, right? Staffing short these days, we have to do what we have to do, right? Well, this technician is rushed because they have to do this set, they have to keep do other sets that are emergency sets, you know, whatever the situation, but the technician's rushed and forgets to check any of the, you know, some of those suctions. But, and so they put up the suction, they put up the sets uh, and prepare it for sterilization. And then of course, you know, that set is picked for a case the next day. It's been sterilized with, with uh, a dirty uh, lumen in the suction. The scrub tech, they fail to check the suction prior to use because the, you know, the surgeon's in a hurry. They need to get on with their day. You know, they have a hundred things they have to do after this case. And then, you know, when the suction's about to be used, this black sludge type material falls out of the suction and into the patient's surgical wound. As you return to work, you know, think about your processes. Uh, think about what your, you know, the processes in place and how they affect or, you know, how they affect the uh, down the line you know are you stopping a process are you being a defensive layer that's working or are you bypassing that and, and something's falling through so as you return to work as you start looking at different processes see how you can change processes for the better and let's not leave 
Kevin Home Alone this year. And that's going to do it for what's on my mind. So today on Mailbox Mania, we're looking at a few articles from the December 2021 issue of the AORN Journal. So again, in this segment, what I'm going to do is, you know, I get a lot of different articles, uh, not just the the Process Magazine, which again is my favorite and it's on the show. It's a regular on this show. But, you know, there's also other articles like last uh, last episode, we talked about the infection uh, prevention article about uh, you know, PPE, you know, they did that study from uh, the Ofsted group, which was really great. So there are always different articles. Now, now this one's from the AORN Journal, but just because it comes from AORN does not mean it doesn't directly apply or can't apply to sterile processing. So I like to look at other things. Um, I, I read a lot more than I bring to the show, but uh, for this article, you know, the first one we're going to look at is titled Management and Mitigation of Temperature and Humidity Events in the Perioperative Setting. Right, so perioperative setting. So that can include sterile processing. And anytime you're dealing with temperature and humidity, well, that can directly affect us. So even though this, this article may not directly point to sterile processing, it definitely can apply. So the abstract for this article reads... Temperature or relative humidity variations that fall outside the recommended parameters for perioperative environment can have serious implications for patient safety and satisfaction as well as the business continuity. Some pathogenic microbes can thrive in prolonged elevated humidity. Supplies and equipment in the perioperative environments exposed to variations in temperature and humidity may become sources of infection or undergo alterations in function, putting patients at increased risk of harm. Other negative effects include increased cost, legal liabilities, and decreased patient satisfaction, all stemming from delays or rescheduled procedures. Now, this article includes two hypothetical scenarios in which facility personnel respond to uh, condensation events and a fluid leak to avoid substantial negative effects in perioperative services. Uh, Also discusses the role perioperative staff members play in preventing adverse consequences through rapid identification of temperature and humidity variations and early uh, interventions. And then finally, Uh, the existing guidelines on perioperative temperature and humidity and uh, multidisciplinary risk assessments and recommendations for education, prevention, uh, risk mitigation are explored. Now, the key takeaways for this article are as follows. Uh, Temperature and humidity control in the perioperative environment is important for staff members, not only for comfort, uh, but for patient safety. Regulatory bodies set the parameters for temperature and relative humidity in the perioperative environment, and these parameters vary depending on how the different areas are used. Now the next uh, takeaway, unexpected changes in temperature and relative humidity can occur because of mechanical failures in heating, 
ventilation and air conditioning systems, uh, more commonly known as HVAC, or water intrusion from internal or external sources or weather-related events. Extreme temperature and humidity variations that persist for extended periods in the perioperative areas can increase the risk to patient safety. The next takeaway, when the concentration of water vapor in the air becomes saturated, condensation forms, which can compromise the sterility of surgical supplies if there is water intrusion. An infection associated with the use of compromised supplies has both the monetary and non-monetary consequences for healthcare facilities. And then perioperative staff members, uh, quick identification and response to high humidity or temperature event is key to reducing the effects of such an event. Education on how to identify and manage variations can prevent adverse consequences through the timely restoration of environmental controls an effective response also includes notifying the appropriate departments, assessing and moving sensitive supplies and equipment as needed, and reprocessing or discarding compromised supplies. So in this article, it says that temperature and humidity controls in the perioperative environment is an important consideration for staff members' comfort and patient safety. Now, I, you know, I think we'll all definitely uh, agree with that, especially in the decontamination department. You know, it's it's really a, a comfort thing uh, when you have all that PPE, those layers, when you're layering PPE on, it's important to keep your staff members uh, comfortable. Now, regulatory bodies set the parameters for temperature and relative humidity in the perioperative environment, and these parameters vary depending on the, how the unit room is used. Uh, relative humidity refers to the ratio of moisture content present in the air to the total amount of moisture in the air that could possibly hold at that temperature. Now, when they talk about, you know, regulatory bodies setting the parameters of the temperature, I'm just going to interject here again. So when you're looking for temperature and humidity in your departments and sterile processing in your different rooms, your decontam assembly and your sterile storage, this is not something that is set by our organization. It's not set by ARN. It's not set by the infection prevention folks. It's not set by uh, the joint commission. Uh, it is set by uh, the FGI uh, and the other folks. And what it is, is what happens is, is they have, they have their guidelines and so your facilities folks, they're the ones who have these guidelines. And it all depends on when your HVAC system was uh, initially installed or last upgraded, right? So the current standards may say one thing, but your uh, facilities department may be, uh, have, have other guidelines. And so if they have uh, some, you know, if your building's 100 years old, Right, then they're going to go by when that last HVAC system was installed or upgraded. So if it's 100 years old, but it was upgraded 50 years ago. Now, I, again, I'm being a little ridiculous in my time frame, but those standards are going to be different than the latest standards. And I thought those came out in 2017. Don't don't hold me to that. Um, but they may be different than what somebody else is using. So it's extremely important 
that you get with your facilities folks. They should have those guidelines, the guidelines for your facility, and then review those for your facility. Now, I'm going to say, and all, all this is in lieu of this article, so this is this is just my take on it. Now, if your your facilities guidelines in the decontamination room, it may say that the the recommended temperature is 72 degrees. Now, we, you know, if anybody's ever worked in the decontamination room, that's extremely hot. Again, when you're layering, when you have the face mask, right? You have uh, a shield in front of you, your eye protection. You have multiple gloves on. Hopefully you're using more than one. Uh, and, and if you're using the correct gloves, you know, correct thickness, you have the gown, which, you know, it's supposed to be impervious and, you know, impervious gowns are very, they, you know, they're not letting water in. So they're keeping heat in as well, right? They're not air conditioned very well. And then you also have, you know, like covers on your shoes. You know, all this PPE is, is extremely, uh, you know, the, it's layers and it can be extremely warm, especially when you're doing a physical task of cleaning, moving around, you know, and decontamination is usually not, you know, you're not just standing there cleaning something, you know, very slowly, you have lots of stuff you're doing. So uh, even though the parameters may say a minimum of 72, you may work with your facilities folks and say, you know, realistically for comfort, for working in here day in and day out, we really need that temperature lower if at all possible. So even though the parameters may say this in the decontamination area, you know, work with your facilities folks, try to get that lowered for your folks, you know, as far as comfort. Now, you don't want to go changing other areas like your sterile storage, you know, that, that's really, in my opinion, that's not up for you to, to mess with, you know, those parameters. But, but again, uh, look, look to your uh, facilities folks to get that guidance. Now back to the article, again, I, I inserted my rant, but back to the article. So the description of temperature and humidity events, the need to preserve patient safety when facing the risk of compromised supplies, environmental moisture may result in the need to close one or more ORs or delay procedures until the facilities rectify the immediate temperature and humidity issues. Now these things come at considerable cost and can be associated with lost OR time, affect supplies, and damage infrastructure. So this article is really good, and it goes in to discuss two scenarios, which describe you know those associated costs, and something that I think you will really find interesting. It talks about how long must a temperature be out of range before supplies are considered damaged or contaminated, right? So I think that's a you know a really unique. Not unique, but I think it's really a discussion that we, we all kind of get into is, you know, so I'm in sterile storage, right? And the mag the maximum temperature is 75 degrees. Well, what happens if the temperature goes up to 76 for five minutes? Are, are the supplies in there? Are they damaged? You know, if it's just five minutes, do I, do I, am I going to start throwing stuff away? Am I going to start reprocessing information or instrumentation. Well, what happens if it's an hour? What happens if it's five hours? What happens if it's 18 hours? At what point do you start considering reprocessing or throwing away 
damaged or contaminated supplies. So this article kind of talks about that a little bit and the uh, it also goes into some strategies uh, to reduce the effects of temperature and humidity events. So it's a really good article. So even though the article is, again, I've said this before, even though the article is based on the operating room, there's a lot of good information that we can uh, glean directly uh, because it applies to sterile processing. So a really good article, it's written really well, lots of good information. I, uh, I, I, if, if there's one article I'm gonna talk about today, I think you should uh, look at that one. I think it applies uh, probably directly uh, to sterile processing the most. Uh, the next article, again, is another good article, and it talks about surgical fires in, you know, perioperative fire prevention and mitigation. You might think that surgical fires, okay, fires in the operating room, that has nothing to do with sterile processing, uh, really not important for me, but, and for the most part, you know, that's true, but when there are damaged instrumentation, and I, I, my mind, I kind of draw draw toward light cords when there's damage in instrumentation like light cords you know those can be a very real source of a fire let's take our light cord for example we have a light cord that it's exposed it has the exposed light fibers you know these uh let's say it was missed somehow you know here we go back to our swiss cheese model it was missed during inspection uh, when it gets to the surgical field and they plug that into a light source those fibers become extremely hot, right? And so the, when those light fibers, when, they're, when they have contact with a surgical drape, it can start a fire fairly quickly, right? And in a surgical environment, you know, a surgical environment is a, an oxygen-rich environment uh, and can potentially, you know, really be dangerous. So a good article has some really good principles that uh, you should think about when it comes to fire in the OR. And again, fire in the OR is not, it's not just for the operating room, it's for the perioperative services and we are perioperative services. And the last article and probably uh, not the most popular of articles, uh, but again, one that I think is important and that's disinfecting mobile devices in the healthcare setting. All right, so I'm not telling you to use a cell phone in sterile processing. I'm not telling you to use tablets in sterile processing, but you're going to have it on you, so you probably should listen to this one. All right, so this article reads, uh, mobile devices such as cell phones and tablets are convenient tools to aid healthcare delivery. However, they have been shown to carry pathogens, and there's a whole list of them here. So anything hospital acquired, you're going to see on this list. You know, they're all a source of cross-contamination in ORs, in sterile processing, in intensive care units, inpatient rooms. All these areas are having issues with this. Now, although proper cleaning and disinfection of mobile devices is essential for patient care, uh, there was a study that identified that only 13% of healthcare personnel routinely disinfect them. Interesting. This is an interesting statistic there. So key practices here. Uh, one is related to mobile devices. Cleaning and disinfection is to have a policy in place. Within that policy, there should be mobile device manufacturers, recommended cleaning and disinfection procedures, and recommended frequency for performing those procedures. Now, the article says something here. It's important to note that mobile devices are not 
regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, right? They're not medical devices, most of them. And they're not going to have uh, health grade, healthcare grade instructions for cleaning and disinfectant. You know, it's not going to be on that list of approved disinfectants from the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Right? So it's important to check the compatibility of your mobile device with selected cleaning and disinfection methods to avoid damage. So it's essential to consider uh, the effects of a cracked screen, uh, the you know, protective covers or the case during cleaning and disinfection. If you have a cracked screen, the device may no longer be waterproof. Uh, your cleaning products could damage it. So with the protective covers and cases, uh, people often wipe those off, but you know, sometimes you actually need to take them off periodically to clean and disinfect them, uh, the devices. Uh, AORN recommends that mobile phones, tablets, and other personal communication or handheld electronic equipment uh, be cleaned according to vice manufacturer's instructions for use before these items are brought into the OR, or I'm gonna go ahead and say sterile processing. There are several types of disinfectant wipes available on the market. Uh, you know, they typically contain various chemical compounds such as hydrogen peroxide or uh, quaternary ammoniums. Uh, these wipes are readily available. They can disinfect surfaces and disinfectants, you know, contact time uh, when it's reached. However, uh, wipes have short-term antimicrobial activity and may cause scratches, damage to screens, you know, there's also the ultraviolet, the UV light sanitizers for mobile devices on the market. They typically consist of some sort of compartment with a UV light source uh, that, you know, is shown on the device when it's placed in there. Uh, these sanitizers, you know, can re result in disinfection within a few minutes, um, typically against, you know, kind of a broad range of bacterias. They're easy to operate, uh, but... You know they're expensive uh, they may they may fade or your screen to your phone or have other some sort of damage uh, only kills organisms that the light reaches so if there's dirt on there if it's not clean it's not going to penetrate through that and then your screen so a, an interesting article uh, again something to think about uh, next time you pull out that cell phone in your department so that's going to do it for this segment. Make sure you go clean your phone for this segment of Mailbox Mania. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. Episode 54 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out that required information, and select the code HOME ALONE. Again, the code for this episode is HOME ALONE. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. Happy New Year, and as always, stay classy and we'll see you next time.